Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is in 1 Corinthians as we return to our study of that letter. We have a break from it again for a couple of weeks as you'll hear from Mark Kohler coming up here, but we turn today to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. This is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul, writing here to the church at Corinth. So we read now and attend with reverence to the holy word of God as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore without error. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through 17. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its proclamation, and its hearing. Well, in our last sermon from 1 Corinthians, uh, we learned some things that Paul taught about the grace of God, which uh, concluded his introductory section uh, to the epistle. Today we begin to get into the, the main body of the letter. As we noted before, uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to answer some questions that people from that congregation had asked and to counter uh, some problems, several problems that he learned had arisen in that church. The first of these that he's going to deal with is the problem of unnecessary and unlawful divisions in this congregation, factionalization. This passage can be broken down into three sections, basically, as Paul addresses this problem. There's first his exhortation, found in verse 10. The problem is stated in verses 11 through 16. So there's the exhortation, then there's the problem, stated through in verses 11 through 16. And the solution is found in verse 17. And some lessons we learn in this passage include, number one, there is a true spiritual unity in Christ's church. Christ's church has a true spiritual unity. Secondly, we learn the local church, as well as the broader church, should strive to live out that unity visibly. Third, we'll see that that unity is founded on the gospel. And so, as we make our way through this passage, uh, we should be able to apply these three lessons. 
First, Paul's exhortation. It's found in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now the word translated there is plead, or sometimes appeal, is a bit more forceful than we might read it in English. Uh, we might read this in English and think that Paul is, is just saying, oh, pretty please, wouldn't you do this thing? It's actually the verb form of the advocate, the defense lawyer in a trial. The word paraclete is the noun version of it, that Jesus uh, calls himself and the Holy Spirit the one who comes alongside, the advocate, the helper. Uh, So this has the sense, actually, of a forceful argument that's made by a defense lawyer in a court case. You know, if you were accused of a crime and your defense lawyer got up and said, "Uh, pretty please, judge, won't you let him go? (laughs) You know, I don't think she probably did this. You wouldn't think that would be a very good argument. No, your your defense lawyer is going to make a forceful argument for you. They're going to say, my client did not commit this crime. This is why. And this is why the state has not proven that case. You're going to have and want a forceful argument. So this, this has the sense of a forceful argument made by the defense lawyer in a court case. Uh, some translations thus justifiably render it actually as exhort. And you'll notice that I even said this is an exhortation. This is, it has the force of a command from Christ through his apostle, but, but the apostle is gently giving the command. Uh, so he exhorts in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is delivered in a loving and gentle way for the benefit of Christ's people. So he exhorts them, notice, as brethren. He's not rebuking or, uh, or condemning those who are outside of Christ. He's, he's, he is the gently rebuking and exhorting those who are in Christ. And he does so in the name of, notice, our Lord, not my Lord, who's not your Lord, he's our Lord. So there's a share in Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is not pronouncing condemnation on heretics or people who are falsely professing faith in Christ, but he is exhorting genuine Christians who have stumbled in sin not to continue doing that, to get out of that sinful pattern. And that emphasis of our Lord also points to the true spiritual unity that Christians have in Christ Jesus. In verse 13, he will ask the rhetorical question, Is Christ divided? The construction of that question, actually, in the Greek, and that following question, was Paul crucified for you, would sound really weird if we were to say it in a word-for-word translation in English. Uh, Literally, it's something like this. Has been divided Christ? Not Paul was crucified for you? That not is actually a particular word. There are different words for not. In Greek, Greek is a very precise language. That's uh, one of the wonderful uh, 
theological things that we see about the fact that the Lord chose to inspire the New Testament in Greek is that it can be very precise and it can help us to understand Scripture in a very precise way. But that not is a particular word, it's may in Greek, uh, which indicates that the expected answer to the question is no. Absolutely not. So it is what we would call a rhetorical question. It's not... He's not actually asking for the Corinthians to write a letter back to him explaining why or why not Christ is divided. Right? He's, he's saying, no, of course not. Christ is not divided. Christ is not divided. Nor was Paul crucified for believers. That's absurd. Nor, as he next asks about, uh, were any of them baptized in the name of Paul? Christians are baptized into Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He is not the Lord of some believers. He, Christ, is the Lord of all. Later in chapter 12 of this letter, Paul will further explain that the church is one body, made up of various members, that is, various body parts or organs. Paul explicitly says in Colossians 1.18 that Christ is the head of, of that body. If a body is dismembered, well, what happens to it? It's not a good thing if somebody ever describes you as having been dismembered. Uh, you, you, won't, uh, you won't like it. The body dies if it's dismembered, right? Now, interestingly, Paul uses two different words for division in this passage. In verse 10, he uses the term for dismembering. For you know, pulling a body apart, essentially. Cutting it to pieces. Or breaking fellowship. It's the, the word that we, for which we get our English word schism. Schismata. And schism, we're talk, when we talk about a church uh, having had a schism, we're talking about a, an unlawful, ungodly division. A division that came uh, as a result often of error or heresy. We're not talking about what happened some eight and a half years ago uh, here where about 40% of the congregation left, but it wasn't because there was animosity or that they were were teaching a false gospel. They went to plant another church in Manhattan, right? And this was a good thing. That's not the kind of division Paul's talking about here where the church is planting new churches and... and, uh, though we might have two congregations that started off smaller than that original congregation, if you put them together now, they'd be much larger than that original congregation was. And we're seeing uh, growth in the church thereby. Now, this is schism. This is division that is not healthy, not good. It's dismembering the body. It's not a visible separation for the point of of growth of the one unified body of Christ. It's a schism. But in verse 13, he uses a different word, divided. It's a form of the same verb that Jesus uh, used in Luke twenty-two seventeen to tell his disciples to distribute the wine amongst themselves at the Last Supper. Either way, though, Paul is saying Christ is neither dismembered 
nor is he distributed or divided among his people. It's not like I have a little bit of Jesus and you have a little bit of Jesus and somebody else has a little bit. No, we all have the whole Christ if we are in Christ. He is whole, he is one. And so being his body, the church is truly spiritually one. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays to his father when he's about to die for his church. He prays about his disciples and says that they may be one as we are. His prayer is that the church be one. Of course, his prayers are answered. But as with many spiritual facts, in this world with sin still present in us, we fail to live those spiritual realities outwardly in a perfect way. And so Paul has to exhort his readers here to work at showing that truth of that spiritual reality that all who are in Christ are one. Now I want you to show it to the world. Live it out. He wants Christians to be perfectly joined together, and particularly in a local congregation to show that they are perfectly joined together. The verb he uses for that is Caterizzo. Uh, it refers to mending nets or clothes, to healing of a broken bone. My wife is good at sewing things, and I just noted the last several days she's been sewing things. One of the things that she sewed was a little thing that was a bit defective on a sleep sack for one of the little girls, so that it allowed the zipper uh, pull to come off. And all she had to do is just sew a little flap on properly, and that zipper pull won't come off now. Not long ago, you'll remember that uh, one of our little girls sustained a a fracture above her wrist. Uh, She had sustained a much worse fall a few days before and was just fine, and then she trips over a toy in her playroom and she breaks her arm course it's a little bit different than if I broke my arm because their bones are soft and so she sustained what was known as a buckle fracture but think about what we did then Uh, did we just leave her in that state and hope for the best ah she'll be fine right no Uh, we took her to the doctor uh, to professionals they put her arm in a splint and they sent her to other professionals who put her in a little pink cast that she was in for three weeks If she'd been older, it would have been six weeks, but since their little soft bones heal pretty quickly at that age, she was in a cast for three weeks. Her bone healed. Indeed, they declared that it was stronger now than before the break. When Christians fail to display our spiritual unity outwardly, we have to take steps to mend it. We have to put that splint or cast, as it were, on it. We have to sew it up so it can heal. Paul exhorts the Corinthian brethren here to do the hard work of healing those divisions that have occurred in their congregation. They need to show the unity of the body of Christ visibly. And he gives us three ways that they can do that. A, being unified in what they proclaim to be true, that you all speak the same thing, he says. B, be unified in what they know to be true. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. And then C, being unified in what they 
live out or act out as true. Uh, unity in how they determine the right course of action. Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So that's his exhortation for them. But why did he need to give this exhortation in the first place? Well, he states the problem in verses 11 through 16. In verse 11 he writes, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren. Again, notice the emphasizing of brethren. He's he's saying, you're you're still Christians. I'm not saying you're not. Uh, But it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And of course, by calling them brethren, he's not only reminding each individual that they're still a Christian, but that the other people in the other divisions are also still Christians, too. We don't know anything more about this Chloe that he mentions here, other than what we can surmise from the reference. Uh, she was a matron, a female head of household. She's the, the head of household, meaning she was probably a widow. That would be a good guess. At least some of her household were Christians who sent messages to Paul uh, letting him know about the divisions that are occurring in the church in Corinth. That's all we know about Chloe and her household here. Uh, Verse 12 tells us what form, though, those divisions took. He says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Factions have formed between people over who their favorite teacher or theologian is. And that each of them is joining a faction. Some favor Paul. Some favor Apollos, a gifted young preacher we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, He was a teacher in the early church who spent a good bit of time in Corinth after Paul's first visit there. Some favor Cephas, that's the Aramaic word that means the rock. It's, it's uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. Peter and Cephas are, uh, mean the same thing. Some claim to be above all of this and say, I am of Christ, and maybe uh, some of them are. As we'll uh, see later in the letter that Paul speaks of divisions that must be because some of you are right and some of you are wrong, basically he says. But it doesn't seem that he commends them for this here. It might be well that uh, that some of them are simply claiming to be superior and saying, well, I'm of Christ and above all your factions. But they're forming their own faction around that. So while that should be the goal for all, Paul doesn't commend them saying, good job saying you're of Christ. So the impression we get is that they're perhaps at least some of them acting arrogantly about it. They're not promoting the healing of these divisions, but simply creating their own new faction. This is illegitimate factionalization of the church. There are legitimate ways in which the church uh, sometimes uh, divides, but this is an illegitimate way. Paul will later speak in chapter 10, verse 19, of divisions which are necessary so that the faithful can remain faithful. And sometimes that has to happen. We acknowledge that all divisions in the church, whether local or whether uh, broader or worldwide, are due to error and or sin. Somebody's wrong. And again, we're not talking here about the healthy division of a church to plant new churches. Uh, 
But when the church divides over doctrine, somebody's wrong. Maybe both are wrong if, if two divide over doctrine. But someone's wrong. Sometimes division becomes a sad necessity, though, as Paul speaks of in chapter 10, uh, because uh, we don't want everyone to get dragged along into the error or the sin that some are dividing over. And so it becomes a sad necessity. But that's not what Paul's addressing here in chapter 1. He's not talking about the difference between the Roman Catholic Church preaching a a gospel of faith plus works versus Protestants separating from them because they're preaching the gospel of justification through faith alone. Nor is he even uh, talking about differences of application of Scripture on behalf of of brothers who who are faithfully working to apply Scripture rightly those who baptize covenant children because they believe that's consistent with Scripture versus those who don't. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's addressing unnecessary division. The dividing of the church into cliques, if you will, uh, like some high school in a bad teen movie, right? Where you've got the jocks over here and you've and you've got the nerds over here and the sporty kids. Oh, I guess that is the jocks, I guess. Uh, and you've got the... the, the uh, Rockers over here and the stoners over here. There might be some overlap in some of these groups. Um, no, it's it's not going to. It's not. It's it's something more like that. It's these unnecessary divisions. And Paul asks in verse thirteen, "Is is Christ divided?" Again, the rhetorical expected answer is no. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It isn't about who our favorite teacher is or who baptized us. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of Christ. I'm reminded of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's statement when he said that he would use terms like Reformed and Calvinist only as a matter of convenience. His intent was not to factionalize the church, but only to acknowledge what he understood to be the actual true biblical system of doctrine. We acknowledge these things as a reflection of the sad and sometimes necessary divisions of the visible church, but they must not become our focus. We must certainly not divide the church over inconsequential things. What's happening in Corinth here in this letter is rather as if Reformed Christians divided over whether they liked John Calvin or John Knox better. Well, John Calvin and John Knox taught pretty much the same thing. Knox was Scottish, Calvin was French, so maybe if you're English you have a little easier time studying Knox than Calvin, because that you know, that French guy. Well, that would be silly, though. That would be an absolute silly division. Uh, people have sometimes made a, a big deal out of the fact that you don't actually get any direct quotes from John Calvin in any of the documents produced by the Westminster Assembly or in any of their minutes. But what you will find is that their most quoted theologian in their minutes, something that Gene Spear, or that uh, uh, Dr. Spear uh, discovered in his research, uh, and that was that there was a man named William Whitaker who is more recent in English and wrote in English and so they didn't have to worry about translation or issues or anything like that 
uh, who fully agreed with Calvin's theology. Uh, and you'll find that actually the Westminster Confession, the first several chapters of it, follow William Whitaker's line of thinking in his book titled Disputations on Holy Scripture. And so it's there silly to say that there's some kind of conscious division on the part of the Westminster Assembly trying to distance themselves from Calvin. They weren't trying to distance themselves from Calvin. Uh, these were people who fully agreed. Here in Corinth, Paul, Apollos, and Peter all taught the same gospel and served the same Lord Jesus Christ. It was Wayne Spear that I was trying to say earlier, not Gene Spear. Wayne Spear did that work on William Whitaker. But here, Paul and Apollos, Peter, they're all teaching the same gospel. They're all serving the same Lord. So what is the point of saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul? Paul says he's glad he didn't baptize more people than he did when he was in Corinth, lest some of them look at these factions and think that Paul was trying to glorify himself and create a Paul faction in the church. Verses 14 through 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. By the way, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth who came to Christ very early on in Paul's ministry there. Uh, Gaius is likely the man in whose house Paul would stay later on when he comes back to Corinth, uh, from whose home he would write his letter to the Romans, as uh, Romans 16.23 indicates. Uh, We don't know anything more about Stephanus other than what's mentioned here. But we do see that this is the problem, that there are these unlawful divisions. And Paul's saying, boy, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you <laughs> because people would think I was baptizing them, baptizing you in the name of Paul instead of the name of Christ. So that's the problem. Factions built around people claiming essentially a favorite teacher in the church. Here's the solution. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The gospel is, in fact, the solution to unlawful divisions in the church. Next time, Lord willing, we'll get deeper into what Paul means by not with words of wisdom and so on as he unpacks that statement in the following verses. But for now, note that it isn't Paul who is the great teacher who founded the church at Corinth, nor was it Apollos who followed up on him, as he'll say later, I planted Apollos watered, nor was it Peter. It was Jesus. Jesus builds his church. Jesus planted the church at Corinth, and he planted it on his gospel. Yes, Paul was his servant, his instrument, in doing that first, laying that first foundation, as he'll say in the next chapter, but if it isn't, actually it's in chapter 3, but if it, it's not the gospel, if it's not the gospel of Christ crucified for his people on which a congregation is founded, then that is no church at all. That's so important that Paul here says that Christ did not send him to Corinth to baptize people. Well, Christ commanded baptism. It's an important thing. Christ's great commission to his church says that we are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them all that Christ has commanded. No doubt, Paul's companions were doing uh, a great deal of baptism while they were in Corinth. There were a lot of new Christians, and they needed to be baptized. But Paul saying this, I'm glad I didn't personally baptize more people, also shows he's not interested in, in, uh, in the factions and feared that people might think that he was there to promote himself. But he says this also to emphasize that it's the preaching of the gospel, not the baptism itself, that is Christ's instrument for building his church. That is the basis of our true spiritual unity. And so that must be the basis of our outward display of unity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we must be unified in proclaiming to be true, as he says back in verse 10. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we must be united in knowing is true. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we have to be unified in acting out as true. You, as a Christian, have a true spiritual unity with all other believers in Jesus Christ. Live it out, especially in your local congregation. Be of one speech proclaiming the same gospel. Be of one mind believing that same gospel. Be of one judgment acting out that same gospel. Doing that will heal great divisions in the church. For the message of Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of his people and raised for their justification is the basis of our unity in Christ. It must therefore be the basis on which we display that unity. Well, let's pray. Lord our God, grant that we being one in Christ may live out that unity outwardly as we proclaim, believe, and act out the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who died for his people and who rose again, and in whose name we now pray. Amen.